Hello, and welcome to another edition of New Books in Systems and Cybernetics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Tom Schult, from the University of British Columbia. While systems thinking has enjoyed an increasing amount of societal influence through work of such practitioner authors as Peter Senge, it is also true that the vast majority of the popular literature on the systems view has taken place within a business context, and as such often avoids placing the first principles of market capitalism on the list of mental models to be unpacked and interrogated within a systemic process of inquiry. A refreshing antidote to this state of affairs is provided by David Peter Stroh's Systems Thinking for Social Change, a practical guide to solving complex problems, avoiding unintended consequences, and achieving lasting results, out in 2015 from Chelsea Green Publishers. Drawing on his rich experience in the nonprofit, educational, and municipal sectors, Stroh's focuses squarely on wicked problems of social development, uncoupled from the profit imperative, as he guides us through highly accessible descriptions of common system archetypes and the strategies that can be employed to address them. In my conversation with David Peter Stroh, we encounter his powerful challenge to all would-be change agents to honestly confront the ways in which they may, in fact, be part of the problem, and to take stock of the payoffs provided by the status quo that, unless they are brought out into the open and honestly interrogated, might actually be surreptitiously sapping the will of systemic agents to change. If we have the courage to engage in these difficult conversations— Stroh shows us that we can begin to build roadmaps to lasting and beneficial systemic change. So let's turn to my conversation with David Peter Stroh. David Stroh, welcome to New Books and Systems and Cybernetics. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to join me and for writing such an excellent and uh, valuable book. Oh, thank you very much, Tom. Thank you for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, we'll begin, as we traditionally do on the channel, uh, by asking you to tell us just a bit about yourself, your academic, professional, intellectual journey to uh, an engagement with uh, systems. And then further to that, maybe what brought you to decide the time was right for this book in particular? Well, thank you. I uh, started out in life uh, preparing to be an urban transportation planner. And I actually got a BS in civil engineering and a BA in urban studies. So even from early on, I was interested in both more of the engineering and design components of this issue, as well as the social psychological aspects of it. Um, I was, I guess, very interested in just helping people connect more effectively to themselves and their environment. Um, When I got to MIT as a grad student, uh, actually in city planning, I read a book uh, chapter by one of my professors on the role of the integrator in society. And I went to him and I said, wow, you know, I'm actually really interested in that. And he said, oh, well, then you might be interested in organization development. I said, what's that? And he sent me over to the Sloan School of Management. And I took a course in OD and discovered that I really was excited about that. And it was also about connecting people uh, more effectively. And it also included a, a structural or design component and a social and psychological aspect to it. So I got very involved in that and um, simultaneously felt that a lot of 
my fellow uh, students and practitioners were sharing the same values as I had, but somehow the field as a whole didn't seem to have as much impact on senior management as I felt that it should have and that something was missing. Uh, turns out one of my fellow classmates in my first OD course uh, was a guy named Charlie Kiefer, and he was very interested in developing a, a very different way of thinking about developing organizations, actually based on the kind of new age potential work that was coming into the fore in the 70s. Uh, so he created a consulting firm, um, and I got really excited about what he was doing. Um, it included systems thinking. Uh, it included the idea of personal mastery or personal responsibility for um, our performance, uh, even when it appears that we're uh, – being at the effect of other forces beyond our control or even influence. Uh, it included the importance of creating a vision and uh, working in accordance with an, one's aspirations. Um, and so I kind of threw in with Charlie, became the second full-time person in the company. And one of our other co-founders was a gentleman named Peter Senge. Uh, Peter was uh, also at MIT at the time. He was uh, studying system dynamics, uh, and he began experimenting uh, in the 80s with bringing together executives who were interested in this new way of thinking about organizations and ultimately became the um, the archivist and the uh, author uh, for the work that we had conceived of in the late 70s and uh, continued to develop into the 80s. Uh, and his book on our work uh, came out in 1990. It was called Fifth Discipline, uh, focused on organizational learning and became a, a huge management classic uh, and bestseller. So I felt that you know, the work that we had started um, as this tiny little startup uh, was actually having enormous impact in the world as I had hoped it would have. Uh, I, because I guess in my civil engineering background, had particular interest in the systems thinking work and how it could catalyze uh, organizational and ultimately social change. Uh, that there's something about recognizing how we're part of the problem, not just part of the solution, and how we're connected with other stakeholders, uh, often in non-obvious ways, uh, how we're often our own worst enemies. Uh, these kinds of insights tend to be very, very catalytic um, in uh, the area of trying to manage change. So I began to work more uh, deliberately on developing and clarifying the intersections between the principles and tools of systems thinking and what I had known to be the tools of organizational and community-wide change. Um, and that's ultimately what led to the book, 
uh, and the cases uh, that are in the book. Terrific. Thank you so much. And uh, of course, the words social change are, are right there in the title. Um, this book is, is very squarely focused on that. And uh, unlike a lot of the other really excellent systems work, though, that is really embedded in the sort of corporate corporate culture, um, this is this is really a, a really important offering for those in the sort of um, not-for-profit sectors. Uh, I mean, obviously, everyone can benefit. Any organization can benefit from this kind of systems thinking. But the particular focus on on social change, I think, makes this a really important book and a, and uh, and different from a lot of the other books out there that have integrated systems thinking into into organizations. Um, so. You talk a little bit uh, in the early going of, of the book about systems thinking as a language and not just a language, but a kind of way of being in the world and, and not simply a, a set of tools um, or a purely intellectual understanding. Can you say a little more about that? Well, I th- uh, thank you for asking. I think there are actually two points, Tom, that you're making that I'd like to address somewhat distinctively. One is systems thinking as a language, and uh, secondly, systems thinking as an orientation, although they're they're certainly closely connected. Um, some people may be familiar with the concept of narrative therapy. Um, which I, I sometimes liken systems thinking to, and it, it may be an odd juxtaposition. But the idea is that uh, we tell ourselves stories. We tell ourselves stories of how the world works, which are usually stories of how we think the world should work. Not how it actually works, but how we think it should work. And there are often discrepancies between the way we think things should work and the way they actually play out. And those discrepancies are a major source of frustration for us and a source of ineffectiveness because we think certain things should happen and then something very different happens in reality. And we don't quite know how to reconcile those uh, differences. So one way in which I think about systems thinking is it's enabling us to become more aware of the stories that we tell ourselves and the limitations of those stories so that we can create more compelling and ultimately more effective stories for ourselves. So instead of stories where, for example, we have the best of intentions, things don't work out the way we thought they would, and uh, there are plenty of other people to blame for the shortfall, we tell a story where we have the best of intentions, we uh, need to better understand the nature of the system that we're trying to change if we're going to stand any chance of being able to change it. So we need to slow ourselves down, be more cognizant of the root causes of the problems that we're trying to solve, and also take responsibility for how we unwittingly contribute to the problem, not just to the solutions. And once we shift that narrative, we can actually become much more effective social change agents. So that's kind of the language and storytelling side of this. Um, 
toward the end of the book, I, I do make the observation that even though thinking is in the phrase, systems thinking is a lot more than just thinking. Mm. There is definitely a, a cognitive set of principles to understand, a set of tools that you can learn about how people think and how to improve the way people think. But there is other dimensions to this work as well that are sometimes not as fully appreciated. There is an emotional component to it because we're emotionally very, very attached to the way we think. Mm. Uh, in fact, Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. You know, our identities are often very, very woven up in how we think about things. So learning how to be more flexible in our thinking um, requires that we often need to, to challenge and be willing to relax uh, the assumptions that we do have about the way the world works. Um, there's a, a physical or a behavioral component to this. One of my colleagues says, systems thinking is a team sport. Mm. It's something that uh, in order to be effective, you don't do by yourself, but you do with other people. Uh, Facilitate it if necessary, but nonetheless uh, with other people. And then one of the premises of systems thinking is that things are connected and often in non-obvious ways. And where do we first get exposed to the idea that everything is connected? We actually get it from our wisdom traditions, from our spiritual background or religious background. And so in some very important way, I believe that systems thinking is a spiritual practice as well, because while we can say that everything is connected, uh, sometimes things are connected for the better, and sometimes things are connected for the worse. Mm -hmm. And we have to make choices as human beings to cultivate positive connections and uh, weaken negative connections. And doing that requires developing certain strengths of character. So this is also about character development. Mm -hmm. And is that in some ways uh, where the personal mastery notion comes in as well? I believe so. So, for example, uh, systems thinking often uh, unearths um, interventions or leverage points that are not the ones that are most obvious or necessarily most politically popular mm. because they require an investment in the short term to get greater gains in the long term. And we tend to be creatures of immediate gratification. So we don't like to think that in order to accomplish what we really care about in the long term, we may have to um, engage consciously, deliberately engage difficulties, make investments in the short run. Mm. Um, so that requires courage. It requires patience. Uh, if we want to change something, we need to really have the humility 
to accept that we may not understand what it is we're trying to change. And any preconceived solutions we have about what needs to be done may not be the right ones. So along with that, humility needs to be genuine curiosity about the way things work. Mm-hmm. So those are some examples. Right. And this then takes us to the, I think, the example that I think many readers may find jolting that haven't come across this this notion before, and the book communicates this so beautifully. You talk about things that aren't necessarily the most politically popular or fly in the face of the things that we think are obvious, is the example uh, that uh, building and opening homeless shelters can actually perpetuate homelessness. Something that that's going to jolt some readers and some listeners right now. Uh, and I, but it thing it speaks to me anyway to the, some of the things you're mentioning about the the things we need to to try and face. Can you can you unpack that just a little bit for us? Uh, sure. So, you know, homelessness is a is a very chronic issue. Um, the traditional way of dealing with it is to provide temporary shelters for people under the assumption that uh, it's more humane to provide temporary shelters than it is to let people out on the street. Uh, And obviously there's some truth to that. But at the same time, the way the shelter system has developed and grown up, uh, people go into shelters. They're allowed to stay only for um, some limited period of time and then they have to go back out on the street and often they end up either on the sidewalk or under the bridge or in the ER or in jail uh, and then eventually are allowed to cycle back into the shelter system. But it's definitely a coping mechanism. It does not help end homelessness. And uh, insights that have developed over the past 10 or 15 years, uh, have concluded that a more uh, sustainable approach to ending homelessness involves uh, providing permanent, affordable, uh, secure housing, uh, often with support services uh, for the you know the mentally ill and, and people who are uh, affected by substance abuse, um, and that actually it's much easier to treat some of the symptoms that lead people to have become homeless in the first place if they have a permanent roof over their heads. Hmm. So the conversation has moved much more to the creation of this permanent, affordable, supportive housing. And uh, the irony is that the shelter system often undermines, one, just the available resources uh, that are required to build this housing. Um, It undermines the incentives to build that housing because, you know, after all, we are giving people a roof over their heads doing what we're currently doing. Uh, We can often reduce the visibility of the problem uh, by providing shelters and in reducing the visibility of the problem, we also uh, reduce community pressure uh, to do something more fundamental and sustainable uh, in order to end homelessness. And this trade-off between a quick fix that works in the short term 
and a more fundamental long-term solution uh, that could be uh, that's often under, literally undermined by the dependence on the quick fix is a recurrent type of dynamic or story uh, in social systems. Right. And this idea, so this opens up a couple other things uh, that you name specifically in the book. I'm thinking about the idea of rewiring systems that maybe we can talk about as we, as we go along. And, um, and this notion of what is incentivized by the system, right? The idea that homeless shelters need full beds to justify their funding. And so there's this, there's this odd uh, feedback uh, loop that, that built in, in into that structure itself, right? So it's the wrong kind of feedback that we need to uh, be moving towards an end to homelessness. You're so right, Tom. I think that the the example of uh, that you just uh, offered around a metric for the success of shelters, which is 100% bed utilization, uh, ultimately seems very counterproductive when you're trying to eliminate the problem entirely. So it requires rewiring and looking at, at the way these feedback loops work. So, uh, and is it fair to say that um, this particular example of the of the homeless shelters is one of the types of system archetypes that you talk about in the book, and that maybe this is a way to sort of segue into some d- description of, of some of the archetypes, maybe starting with this particular case. And I, I don't expect you to go through them exhaustively because there's, there's at least 10 that are mentioned explicitly, and I'm sure there's all kinds of other uh, subcategories. Um, but I, maybe talk about this one in terms of an archetype a little bit more, and then maybe what are uh, maybe one or two of the other archetypes that have really been on your mind lately in some of the some of the consulting work and other things you've been doing uh, most recently. Mm-hmm. So the one that um, we're talking about here is called shifting the burden, um, shifting the burden to the quick fix, and um, system archetypes. Just so we can back up for a moment. Uh, We talked about storytelling a few minutes ago. Archetypes are kind of classic storylines or plot lines that recur in all sorts of social systems. And to the extent that we can understand those uh, recurring stories or recurring dynamics, we can get a leg up into understanding a lot of different complexity. Not that these are the be-all and end-all, but they're fantastic catalysts or seed crystals for understanding more complex dynamics. Uh, I read somewhere recently that in all of literature, there's something like 22 storylines, core storylines. It's not an infinite number. And in systems work, there's maybe a dozen or something Mm -hmm. like that. But once you see those... um, and understand those, you can get a lot of insight very quickly. So going back to this particular one, the story of shifting the burden. The uh, the core dynamic is that you start with some kind of problem symptom, uh, in this case, let's say homelessness. And um, we know about two different ways of addressing that problem. One is the more expedient, often path of least resistance or quick fix, uh, which in this case is temporary shelters and emergency supports. 
And people also talk about a more fundamental, more lasting solution to the problem, uh, which in this case would be this, this idea of permanent supportive uh, housing. And um, the thing is, when, when faced with the problem symptom, you have a choice. Do you go with the quick fix or do you go with the fundamental solution? And because the quick fix requires less investment, um, is maybe more politically uh, acceptable um, and faster to implement, we go with a quick fix. And in the short term, it works. Um, <clears throat> and the problem symptom goes down or we reduce the number of homeless people, at least homeless people at any one point in time. Um, however, when we reduce the number of homeless people, we also reduce the motivation of people to implement the more fundamental solution. I mean, if we can deal with this uh, in a more expedient way, why bother to make the longer term investments in potentially a, a politically less popular uh, solution? So we don't invest in the permanent housing. And when we don't invest in the permanent housing, the homelessness problem recurs. And then we're back with the same choice. Moreover, the more we depend on the quick fix, over time, we actually create conditions that undermine our ability to implement the fundamental solution, even if we wanted to. So, for example, all of the money that goes into shelters is now no longer available to build permanent, affordable supportive housing. So not only does dependence on the quick fix reduce our motivation to implement the more lasting solution, but it actually also undermines our ability to implement that long-term solution. Another uh, term for this dynamic is addiction. Mm. People literally become addicted to, a, in this case, a social quick fix. And what are there any other um, system archetypes that have in, in the work you've been counting lately, ones that have been most in your mind of, of the say, you know, like you say 10, a dozen that are, that are uh, we find all over the place. Uh, what are some ones that you've encountered most recently or that you've thought more about recently? So success to the successful is the story of how the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. And we are living in a time of growing income and asset inequality, certainly in the U.S., but also in uh, developed, developed countries, uh, much less developing countries around the world. Um, and what this story basically says is for a fixed set of resources – when one group, let's call them group one, starts out with more resources, a larger piece of the pie than group two, it's able to use its greater amount of resources to become more successful and uh, garner even more resources in the future. 
while the group that starts off with fewer resources uh, will all else, being, uh, all else being equal become less successful over time, which will leave them less able to generate additional resources for themselves. So the, uh, the story becomes one of a, a virtuous cycle for um, those who start off advantaged and a vicious cycle uh, with those who start off with the shorter end of the stick. Um, and that, I believe, is a, a very, very crucial story for our time. Um, now, the tendency for the rich to get richer and the poor get poorer is not just a capitalistic one. It occurs in many different types of economic and political systems, including the communist system, where uh, the elite who run the government um, figure out how to keep most of the spoils for themselves. Um, even though it's not a, a capitalistic society. And sustainable societies are those who recognize this tendency uh, and figure out ways to redress the imbalances over time. So that's an example. Great. Thank you. Um, so moving into how organizations themselves may start to, to pick up and hopefully do pick up your book uh, because it provides such a great sort of roadmap to begin addressing uh, some of the issues when they are, as you, as you, the sort of mantra that comes from the book, which I, I really like and I'm using a lot in my own work these days. How come, in spite of all of our best intentions, we keep getting an outcome that is not what we want, right? And this idea that it is with the best intentions and all working as hard as we can, something is taking us the wrong way. So maybe I've answered my own next question, which is when and how should an organization realize that systems thinking is what they need? Uh, well, I, I think you're right. Mm -hmm. Part of the, uh, to re the reason to use it is we have been spending a lot of resources trying to move the needle on something either solving a problem or achieving a particular goal. And we're just not getting the payoffs um, that we expect uh, in the long term from the level of investment that we're putting into it. Another um, type of application, which is often related, is a situation where people um, disagree not only what the solution should be to the problem, but often they disagree on what the underlying cause of the problem is in the first place. Mm -hmm. And systems thinking can be a very effective way of developing uh, a better shared appreciation of uh, the underlying causes and hence more appropriate solutions, right. the best solutions for the situation. Right. And so your book very focuses very nicely in a very, very tangible way into something that you talk about as a four-stage change process. So could you perhaps talk us through, uh, in, in the most essential terms, that four-stage process? Sure. So the, the first stage is what I call building the foundation for change. It appears in most different change management processes. Uh, the idea being you need to get a preliminary uh, sense of what it is that people want to accomplish and a preliminary sense of what's going on now and recognize that there is a gap uh, that people want to bridge. 
you also need to understand who are the different stakeholders involved, stakeholders who uh, impact the problem or, uh, or the issue or are impacted by it. Uh, and you need to figure out ways to begin to engage those stakeholders in a joint process. Um, the, and, and the third thing I would say about building a foundation for change is there are certain capacities uh, that people can develop to talk with each other more productively, to think with each other more productively. And so doing some preliminary capacity building along those lines is also a good thing to do early on. Um, the second stage, which I call facing current reality, is to drill more deeply into the uh, this issue of why things are the way they are. Why, uh, as you said, how come despite our best efforts, we're not able to uh, move further forward? So uh, the second stage is to gain a deeper understanding uh, into why we have not been able to move further. What are the underlying root causes of the problem? Um, the third stage is to go back up to the question of what do we want in the first place? And the reason for coming back to that is that one of the things we discover in understanding why things are the way they are is that there is always some kind of payoff to the status quo. Hmm. You know, we might complain how horrible it is, how dysfunctional it is. It would be so good if it were all different. And yet, even in this simplest, simple homelessness case, there are a lot of payoffs to the status quo. I mean, if we're helping people cope with homelessness, we feel like we're doing something humane and we're keeping people off the streets and it means the problem's less visible. And moreover, if we're in the, uh, the shelter business, you know, we have a pretty good thing going. We're getting funded to do what we do. We're able to um, keep our employees um, occupied and paid to do what they do. And it's like we're doing good deeds. Um, what's so bad about that? Mm -hmm. Now, the only, uh, the only problem with that is in um, – supporting a system that helps people cope with homelessness, we're actually undermining our ability to end homelessness. Mm -hmm. And so we often end up uh, discovering that we have to make a choice between what we say we really care about and um, what we're actually accomplishing right now mm -hmm. in, a, in a positive sense, in a certain way. And then um, the fourth stage is once we've kind of revisited this question of what do we want in the first place is to bridge the gap between what it is that we want and perhaps need to consciously commit to now and where we are. And that involves uh, identifying where the high leverage, high return on investment uh, solutions are. I also recommend that people develop what I call a systemic theory of change. So most theories of change are linear. They're input-output models, mm -hmm. uh, what we put in, and this is what, what's going to come out at the other end. Um, 
But the fact of the matter is that systems behave and evolve in circular ways, not in linear ways. So I believe it, it's much more helpful to develop a, a theory of change that models the circularity of the way the systems really behave in the first place. So you, you mentioned as part of this process is having um, catalytic conversations. Can you say a little bit more about uh, precisely how you define a catalytic conversation and, and what are some of the, the means by which people within organizations can try and foster those particular types of conversations? Well, to me, a catalytic, catalytic conversation occurs, one, when we step back from our assumptions about the way things should work and have a more clear-headed conversation about the way things actually do work. Um, Secondly, we recognize that when things aren't working, it's not simply because other people aren't pulling their weight, but because we're also, um, from our particular position in the system, um, contributing to the shortfalls that we're frustrated about. And Mm. the purpose of understanding that is not so much to then turn the blame inward, but rather to empower ourselves. Because ultimately, the only people we can control uh, are ourselves through understanding and possibly changing our own intentions, our own thinking, and our own behavior. Um, And if everybody's doing that, then we stand a much better chance of uh, improving the system as a whole than trying to devote our energies to wishing that everybody else was doing something different. And it's, I get the sense from the book and and just from my own sort of sense of of human nature as I have encountered it, uh, that this idea of facing current reality is is often the step that people struggle with the most, most because one has to ask oneself those difficult questions about what payoffs am I actually receiving from things being the way they are in spite the aspirations that I, that I um, believe that I have. Is that, is that your experience that this is, this is a lot of the, uh, I mean, all these stages are work, but that this facing current reality is, is, is really tough for folks to work through at times. I agree with you, Tom. And I think that's why, um, I and my colleagues put most of our emphasis in the change process on that step Mm. Uh, because one of the leverage points for changing a system, the first leverage point, is actually self-awareness. We can't change unless we're aware of what we're actually doing right now. Uh, years ago, I had a guy in a workshop and we were doing some exercises and everybody was working on their own problem. And so he was working on this chronic problem that he had been struggling with for a long time. And he gained some insight into the the feedback loops and so on. And he was so excited and he told me about it and he said, you know, and to think I've just been going in circles on this for years. <laughs> and I thought to myself – Actually, the problem isn't that you've been going in circles. It's that you weren't seeing the circles you were going in. Mm -hmm. 
And when you become aware of the circles you're going in and recognizing how counterproductive they are, you have both a lot more motivation and a lot more capability to create an, a new future, a new path forward. Right. And, it, and in terms of the work that you and your colleagues do when, you, when you're going through this sort of phase and you're doing interviews and trying to help find these things, you mentioned at a certain point what you call screens to listen through during interviews to try and distinguish between what is truly measurable data and separate that from how people interpret the data. Can you tell us a little bit about the kinds of listening skills and, and what those sorts of screens that you and your colleagues have developed to try and parse what you're hearing as you're listening to these stories that you mentioned and trying to figure out what is, what, like you say, what is measurable data and and what is interpretation and that, that very complex mix between the two? Mm. Well, you know, we often say, is the glass half full or the glass half empty? And um, the data is that the glass is half full of water. Right. That's data. You can measure what 50% of the volume is. But above the data is a layer that we always put on data, which is how we interpret that data. Do we interpret it from an optimistic point of view or from a pessimistic point of view? Do we say it's half full or do we say it's half empty? Um, so I listen carefully for, as you say, this distinction between what are the facts, if you will, and what people make of those facts, what they think they should be doing and what they actually do. Um, another thing that I pay attention to and why it's so important to interview a very diverse set of stakeholders is everybody sees part of the situation. Nobody is likely to see the whole thing. And there's a metaphor in the book that's actually been around for about a thousand years called the blind men and the elephant, mm. where everyone uh, who, who is blind is touching a different part of the elephant and swearing based on the part of the elephant that they're touching that what an elephant is, is some part of the elephant. So the, the person touching the ear says, oh, I've got a fan here. And the person touching the tail says, I've got a rope. The uh, person touching the leg says, I've got a tree trunk. And nobody sees the elephant. So uh, I'm always wanting to honor the particular standpoint uh, that each of the stakeholders has and, and believe that they legitimately see part of the reality, but they just don't see the whole thing and how the whole thing interconnects. So right. I want to help people build a better picture of what the whole elephant looks like. Great. And the book does a marvelous job of, of pointing us in, in those directions. Uh, and I'm conscious of time here because I know you've got other commitments. There, the, the, the idea, you point us towards leverage points as ways to close the gap between the status quo and the case for change after we've done a, a really rigorous and honest comparison of the case for and against those things, which is great. And achieving the balance between simplicity and complexity, aligning your highest 
aspirations with immediate self-interest, uh, rewiring cause and effect, just just so much in this book to really help people take systems thinking from sort of a concept to something that they, they can start acting on today, uh, which is, which is uh, such a valuable contribution. So I'd just like to close uh, by thanking you and also asking you our traditional last question, which is, what are you working on right now? Uh, I am actually finally getting back to some work that I've wanted to do for a long time, which is uh, to describe the system dynamics of inequity and um, uh, racism. So we're dealing both with um, economic inequity and we're also dealing with uh, structural racism. Uh, and how can I use the tools that I work with to help people better understand the, the various complex sides of that issue? Uh, and then the other thing I do a lot of is capacity building with uh, foundations and uh, nonprofits so that they're both um, become more familiar and more capable of uh, applying these principles and tools to the work that they do out in the world. Great. Is there a book project connected to the inequity and racism uh, work that you're doing? Too early to tell. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm I hope we'll be the first people you think of uh, to talk about this book because uh, I, I very much look forward to seeing uh, the rich work you'll, you're uh, certain to do in those areas and, and that we'll all be able to benefit from. So thank you again so much for, for spending the time with us. And I hope to talk to you again in the not so distant future. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Tom. You bet. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.